Sovereign Parser is the most accurate resume and job order intake technology in the industry. The more accurate your data, the better decisions you can make. Find out more about our suite of products today by visiting Sovereign.com. That's S-O-V-R-E-N.com. We provide technology that thinks, communicates, and collaborates like a human. Sovereign. Software so human, you'll want to take it to dinner. How old were you at this point? I was 25 years old and had a $79 billion portfolio. Hell yeah. (laughs) That shit only happens in D.C. Hide your kids. Lock the doors. You're listening to HR's most dangerous podcast. Chad Sowash and Joel Cheeseman are here to punch the recruiting industry right where it hurts. Complete with breaking news, rash opinion, and loads of snark. Buckle up, boys and girls. It's time for the Chad and Cheese Podcast. Welcome to the Chad and Cheese Podcast, everybody. I am Chad Sowash here with my work wife, Joel Cheeseman. What up? And today, Joel, we're going to have somewhat of a cerebral discussion. Are you ready for that? Getting our brain on today. (laughs) Getting our brain on. So on today's show, we have a real rock star. We're going to talk about how we can build a stronger, better, more healthy, and innovative workforce. On Chat and Cheese, we always talk about and debate, uh, quite frankly, about how we need to change government regulations, programs, obviously staff, to drive innovation, wages, and many other opportunity zones. Uh, well, today we're going to do just that with our friend, John Gorman. <laughs> now, John is the founder and chairman of Nightingale Partners, and John's done a bunch of other stuff. But John, I, I can't wait, dude. I got I to gotta jump in. I, I want to hear the story about how you landed in the Clinton administration. Was that an appoint, appointed position? How, how did that all happen? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's, a, it's a long, strange trip. And one, thanks for having me on, guys. It's a great pleasure to be here. So how did I land in the Clinton administration? So my career in D.C. started about 30 years ago, um, I was hired uh, straight out of Oberlin College to come be the press secretary for my hometown congressman, uh, John Conyers Jr. from Detroit, where I grew up. A year later, I was his chief of staff. Uh, and then a year later, I was helping to run then Governor Clinton's campaign in Michigan, which he won handily in 1992. And then I was uh, an appointee to then what was then called the Healthcare Financing Administration, which runs Medicare and Medicaid and is now known as the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Uh, my job was to be the, the founding deputy for uh, what was a new uh, Office of Managed Care. So for the first time, we had set up uh, an office that would be the hub for all the Medicare and Medicaid HMO programs uh, back in the early 90s. How old were you at this point? I, I was 25 years old and had a $79 billion portfolio. Hell yeah. <laughs> that shit only happens in D.C. <laughs> So that that's uh, a glimpse in the past. Uh, let's talk about present real quick. Uh, Nightingale Partners, uh, what do you guys do? We are uh, kind of a weird beast. We are one of these uh, Opportunity Zone funds that came out of Trump's big tax giveaway bill. Um, but this was actually Cory Booker's program designed to 
spur investment in real estate in disadvantaged communities. And then a really strange thing happened. Last year, the IRS loosened up the regs to allow uh, opportunity zone capital to be used for not just uh, purchasing real estate, but for leases, more importantly, for working capital and for meeting the business requirements of a new company in one of the roughly 9,000 opportunity zones around the U.S. And that was Mnuchin, wasn't it? Well, yeah, technically IRS is um, is part of Treasury. I, I doubt that Mnuchin had anything to do with that loosening <laughs> of those eggs. Uh, I don't but, know, man. Any way to be able to prospectively launder, uh, I think he might have had something to do with it. Well, what happened was basically the way the program works is if you invest capital in one of these 9,000 disadvantaged communities, not only is the initial investment tax free, but all of the proceeds you make on that investment are completely tax free. So as you can imagine, that was like catnip for Republican billionaires and it opened up about $6 trillion in available capital, uh, of which about $30 billion has been invested in these uh, opportunity zones in the 18 months uh, the program's been operating. So um, it's brand new, uh, but it suits our purposes very well. We are the only opportunity zone fund that makes investments in healthcare, and specifically our focus is on social determinants of health. So these are, you know, basically four fancy words for poverty. So basically we invest in large scale anti-poverty interventions with large health insurers. Give our, give our listeners who aren't, uh, don't live this every day. What is an opportunity zone? So an opportunity zone is one of about 9,000 census tracts across the U.S., that were uh, selected by governors as being really economically disadvantaged, and they're all medically underserved, which is a designation by the feds that means they have really terrible access to healthcare, uh, not nearly enough healthcare providers to go around to the population. So for instance, the West Baton Rouge Opportunity Zone in Louisiana is one of the worst medically underserved communities in the U.S., and it has about a 1 to 7,000 primary care physician to patient ratio. So that's where we focus our investments in partnership with health insurance companies. So we'll stand up things like um, meal delivery programs if food security is a challenge for their members. Uh, We do a lot of non-emergent transportation to doctor's appointments, to pharmacies, so people can pick up their meds. We do a lot of um, housing security, and uh, so we are involved in lots of uh, low-income housing developments with on-site health and social services, because all of these types of investments have been shown to yield about a three to eight X return on investment. And so as investors in partnering with health plans on these things, these are really impactful investments that improve the quality of care and dramatically reduce its cost. This actually helps drive the economy. Do do you have anything that actually ties to economic growth as well? Oh, that's that's in, in our DNA. As opportunity zone investors, you know, there's always a huge priority on economic development and um, making 
underserved communities, disadvantaged communities, uh, more resilient, especially during this pandemic, and to uh, really foster job growth. One of the consistent themes that we see in our roughly 50 projects that we've got in development right now, and why I was so excited to join your show today, guys, is the common thread in all of our projects include community health workers or promotores, as we call them in Puerto Rico. And the community health worker is basically just a a social worker without the license, but who's from the community in which we're intervening and can help serve as a navigator and a coordinator of care and services for uh, really vulnerable and expensive patients within their neighborhoods. Um, So in every single project we do, community health workers are uh, a fixture. But, you know, the very nature of the stuff that we get into in social determinants even really speaks to physician, uh, nurse and extender burnout. Um, All of the surveys of uh, healthcare personnel shows that um, uh, where they work in a health system that invests heavily in anti-poverty initiatives their loyalty to their employer and all of the indicators of uh, burnout, especially during the pandemic, are dramatically less for that workforce. So, um, yeah, we like to think that um, every aspect of what we do has to have a, a significant focus on economic development and making communities more resilient during this pandemic. Yes. So raising, obviously, and providing uh, health care. Some of the easy questions for you, but again, we're not we're not wonks here. What company or what country spends the most money on their health care system? Well, I don't think we should judge the quality or sophistication of a health system on how much we spend. And I don't think we should either. But I mean, who who spends the most? Well, we do. Okay, so and then to my second, my second question is: What country does the best in covering their their civilians, their actual full population? Is it? Do we do that? No, of course not. I mean, right? You, our our system is a patchwork quilt of coverage on its best day. Yeah, but especially during a pandemic, when in a country that still among industrialized nations is really the only one that still relies on employer-based coverage. Yes. Why we now see enormous spikes in the uninsured because people are getting laid off, they're losing their health insurance. So now, you know, we are almost back to uh, pre-Affordable Care Act levels of uninsurance with about 45 million people uninsured in the U.S. right now. It's It's an international embarrassment that uh, that this is happening in the wealthiest country in the world. And as you point out, the country that spends the most on healthcare. Now, the countries that do the best uh, yes. are all the European Christian democracies and Canada. You know, the Brits, the Germans, the Norwegians, the Swedes, uh, the Canadians, uh, all do an amazing job of universal healthcare. But these things all, of course, come with trade-offs in terms of access to care and things of that sort. But if you ask their populations, they are so much happier with their systems of coverage than uh, any American has ever testified to here. So, John, is your organization specifically uh, an advocate for universal health care? Yeah, because if you want to address social determinants of health, if you want to address systemic poverty and racism that's embedded in the U.S. health system, then it has to start with coverage because coverage 
you know, opens up a whole new world of access to providers, uh, to prescription medication and to uh, related social services that charity and any number of other state and federal government programs can can only dream of having the impact of. Why is America is the only sort of uh, advanced nation in the world, the richest nation in the world? Why don't we have a universal health care system? Several reasons. One, our whole system of employer-based coverage, which covers 75 million Americans, really sprung out of World War II. All the men went off to war, and among those that were left home, uh, and then, of course, all the women that rose to the occasion, uh, large employers had to use offering health insurance as a, uh, an incentive to get uh, a more qualified and highly skilled workforce to come work for them as opposed to their competitors. So it sprung from there, really. And then um, just because of the organized resistance, primarily from doctor and hospital organizations, have you seen, you know, historic resistance to universal coverage? I mean, you have to remember that it was back in the day, it was the American Medical Association that lobbied the hardest against uh, the establishment of Medicare, of all things, back in 1965. Why did they why did they lobby against that? Well, it's always been along the lines of the the words that echo true still today, socialized medicine. And right. they just set people into a panic that, you know, uh, we're going to have socialized medicine. And, you know, it's just that just makes me laugh every time I hear it, because or when you hear, you know, Trump supporters screaming about keep the government out of my Medicare. I mean, Medicare <laughs> is the government. And Medicare is a single payer. Medicare is socialized medicine. And it works pretty damn well for the most part. Well, John, the best health care I have ever had was when I was in the military. I could just walk in, have my ID, lay it on the counter and get whatever service I needed, whether it was going to the dentist, going to, you know, get a checkup. It it didn't matter. And the thing was, it was standard, you know, right today in, in, you know, today it's almost like, well, I'm not really sure if I should go see the doc or not in the military. It was like, you know, get your ass to the TMC. Exactly. We, we offer it within segments of the U S population. You know, right. those serving our country, right? You guys get great health care when you're serving, but yes. then, by the way, when you're out, then you're in the VA. Yes. And we know how well that kind of care has gone uh, since its inception. Well, talk about preventative then, because, I mean, that's that's one of the things that we don't really focus on here in the U.S. We is don't. preventative care because yeah. we're not all covered. And if we're not doing preventative care, then the likelihood of us uh, getting to stage three, stage four cancer or whatever might happen because we're we're never going to the doctor is much higher than other countries. What is, what is the, I guess the the biggest advantage for not for universal healthcare other than just obviously covering everybody and, and making it a human right. But what is the biggest advantage? Would it be the preventive side of the house? Well, it it can be depending on uh, the population you're trying to ensure. The folks that are in the gap right now tend to be uh, childless adults, especially in red states that did not accept the Medicaid expansion that came out of Obama's Affordable Care Act. And therein lies another 
uh, impediment to universal coverage is that, you know, the ACA really tried to get there by doing this incredible uh, offer from the feds uh, for Medicaid expansion and that they would cover all of the costs of it for the first decade in which a state expanded. And the real vulnerability and the fatal flaw in that strategy was that it relied on Republican governors willing to accept the deal of the century from a black president. And we know what happened. Uh, Most of them refused to accept it. And now, you know, the vast majority of the uninsured uh, reside in red states that refuse the Medicaid expansion. So it's just a maddening story of the last century of trying to drag our way into universal coverage when you face impediments at every step of the way because entrenched interests, primarily hospitals, fight so hard. Uh, and then, of course, Republican governors, in this case, uh, fight so hard against common sense uh, solutions that would get us there. Didn't Pence actually take the money? And then he goes to the White House, and now they're trying to disassemble everything that he took money for. Exactly. It's maddening, isn't it? The hypocrisy is just astounding. And so what you're seeing now instead, of course, is that all of the Medicaid expansions that are occurring now are happening on ballot initiatives that can go around governors and legislatures and force them to enact uh, a Medicaid expansion. We've seen that most recently in in several uh, red states in the past year. Uh, last November saw uh, several uh, states enact. So there's obviously a political angle to this. When I try to when I try to discover answers to questions, I like to say, "Follow the money." Yeah. Um, who's Who's getting rich on the current system, and who has the most to lose financially going to a universal system? First, we got to start by talking about what universal means, right? There are a lot of ways to get to universal coverage, guys. We can get there through. <laughs> existing programs that we've got, I think we just have to do them through a lens of understanding the political reality in which we live. Republican governors are not going to accept a Medicaid expansion. And so unless we can reliably get ballot initiatives in all the outstanding red states to put Medicaid expansion on the ballot and and have confidence that they will pass as they have in the last several red states that took them on, Um, you're never going to get there through a Medicaid expansion, okay? You clearly can't do it through employer-based coverage. So then that means the best way to approach it would be through making Medicare uh, more open to people who are not currently eligible for the program. Medicare, of course, is our, our federal insurance program for the elderly and the disabled. You can get there through Medicare for all, like Bernie talked about during the primaries, and that, you know, from my standpoint, is just, you know, a, a, a moderate who goes as far left as he can and still wins. Medicare for all is not only politically infeasible, it's never going to happen. But if it did, it would set our health system back actually by about 40 or 50 years, just in terms of the progress we've made in value-based and coordinated care, just because it would be moving everybody into a fee-for-service environment like traditional Medicare is. Now, if you want to talk about how you get to universal coverage and you could actually accomplish it, you could actually get there, that it's politically doable, then you got to start looking 
at something like Medicare Advantage for all who want it, like Pete Buttigieg and Kamala Harris were talking about during the primaries, and which is now embedded in Joe Biden's Medicare proposal to some extent. So the Humanas of the world, those organizations, the insurance companies, I mean, they're still getting rich, are they not? Off of this, off of this system, yes, yeah. So, so that's part of where the money goes. Not to mention, if we have a a, a sick population, which it, it to me just boggles my mind. If we have a sick population, then we're generating money for companies like that. Oh, and they just all reported record second quarter earnings as a result of the pandemic because because utilization plummeted. Uh, during the lockdown and then in the last couple of months. It's now creeping back up, especially for outpatient services, but we have seen a, a dramatic decline in elective inpatient procedures in hospitals. And so as a result, the insurance companies were printing money and most of them were, were turning uh, earnings that were 18 to 20% higher than they saw at the same time in 2019. How do you get away from privatizing people getting sick. There's several approaches to it in the other industrialized countries. You've got uh, countries like uh, Great Britain and Canada that do have true universal coverage systems that in effect function like Medicare for all, because that's how they were originated. That's how they started. That's what their populations are used to. And it's what has so much broad political support in those countries. Then you've got others like Switzerland and Germany and Poland that actually do have privately administered universal coverage. And that's why I think, you know, a Medicare advantage for all who want it um, would be a uniquely American solution to universal coverage because, of course, Medicare advantage is the private option in Medicare that um, where the Medicare program contracts with health private health plans like Humana, uh, like Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts or Indiana, and then they uh, pay them a fixed rate to provide all of the services that their members will require for the coming month. And that's that could be a very good framework to build you know, as I said, a uniquely American approach to universal coverage that could actually get enacted. Yeah. And I can't think of anything more American than having portable healthcare benefits because today, I mean, Joel and I talk about it all the time. We really believe that America is hurting on the entrepreneurship and innovation side of the house because individuals, families are locked into jobs. And if they can't get away from those benefits, they can't actually do what they want to do as an entrepreneur and right. drive innovation. Do you have, are you seeing any of that? Are you tying, again, back to the economics of it in the actual workforce side of the house, are you seeing any of that in the studies that you guys are either tapping into or doing yourself? Well, I mean, job lock has always been a major characteristic of the American health insurance system because, as I said earlier, 75 million of us have our coverage through our employers. Now, the Affordable Care Act was really designed as a backstop against that system in the formation of the health insurance exchanges and marketplaces and then all the subsidies that it provides to um, individuals 
that need to buy their health insurance that way. So when you when you put it that way and talking about entrepreneurs, I think about startups, frankly, like like us. And we are in the D.C. health insurance exchange for our coverage here at Nightingale, as uh, most entrepreneurs are or should be, because this is where you get, you know, the whole marketplace for uh, small uh, employer sponsored coverage or for individuals. And if you qualify for the subsidies, you can actually get very good quality coverage through the health insurance exchanges uh, for little or no money, uh, as I think most small business people would find themselves qualifying for. We talk uh, a bit on the show in terms of the gig economy, which kind of dovetails into this topic. Yeah. Um, Uber and Lyft, for example, have been in the news recently in, in our space in California in terms of government saying we need to treat drivers as employees. So now Uber, Lyft, you have to start giving benefits, retirement, etc. Um, the latest news I saw was Uber and Lyft are going to consider franchising being drivers. So they don't mm-hmm. they don't have to you know, cross that bridge. Right. How does the gig economy and how, how these folks are treated sort of shake out in your mind? If you could fast forward a little bit, how does, how does that, how does that play out in your mind? Well, a couple of different ways, you know, again, I would think most of the folks that are in the gig economy uh, would find themselves eligible for coverage under the affordable care act through the exchanges. Uh, if their income uh, qualifies them for subsidies then you're going to get great deals on individual coverage through the exchanges. Now, some folks in the gig economy may even find themselves eligible for Medicaid coverage. And then that's going to be highly dependent on the state in which they live. Um, As a general rule, uh, eligibility requirements for Medicaid are much uh, richer in blue states than they are in red states. And so you have to be almost desperately poor to qualify for uh, Medicaid in many of the red states. You know, you live in California or you live in New York, you know, you can get uh, Medicaid eligibility. And there you're just really kind of dealing with uh, people's concern about stigma for enrolling in uh, the Medicaid program. So in your mind, it'll be more of a government solution as opposed to Uber and Lyft sort of actively or proactively providing or services like Upwork or Fiverr, which are sort of gig platforms, you don't see them providing some sort of, of substance substance. No, I mean, you know, they could, they could look at some of these, the group offerings that Trump has suggested, but that's all junk insurance. You know, it, it really, it's just terrible insurance and it's just shot full of holes like Swiss cheese you know, you see some of these like religious and fraternal organizations go on that route, but that doesn't work for uh, individuals in the gig economy. Um, I think if you're going to be looking at groups of people getting together, you know, then you could maybe through maybe a franchise uh, put together a small group that would then go on to the, the health insurance exchanges and uh, be able to get slightly better rates by having, you know, hundreds or thousands of people in a group buying together. But generally, the gig economy will find its coverage in uh, Obamacare and or uh, the Medicaid expansion that came from. So you said Trump in his his offering is really looking at 
doing more than, I mean, he's already decimated healthcare the way that it is today anyway. What I'm hearing is he really just wants to, like he always does, give the crumbs to, uh, to, to, to the pawns who are out there. Let's see. Yeah. Let's push away from the table for a second. Let's say Biden gets elected. What do you see happening then? Well, what happens then really depends on whether or not the Dems reclaim the Senate. Right now, it's actually looking pretty good. Now, if Biden gets elected and if the Dems reclaim the Senate and hold the House, as is assumed they will, Mm -hmm. then, boy, it's a whole new world out there. And I think you're going to see coverage rocket to one of the top two priorities of the Biden administration. And I think that's where you're going to see Joe's Medicare proposal, his big Medicare expansion proposal, and uh, a reaffirmation of the Affordable Care Act, assuming it's spared the uh, Executioner's Acts in the Supreme Court in November. Did you notice they just scheduled that hearing conveniently for a freaking week after the election? Imagine that. Yeah, imagine. Assholes. Yeah. John, last one for me uh, in regards to sort of assuming Biden gets in and some of these things, you know, start start moving forward. How would you pay for this uh, system? I mean, I've I've read anywhere from, you know, everyone's going to pay higher taxes to, you know, 71 percent of families are going to have a a much higher tax burden. Uh, Do you take money away from the defense budget? I mean, how do how do you how do you guys propose we pay for a universal system? Well, first and foremost, you got to you got to completely roll back both Trump and Bush's billionaire tax rebates. I mean, there's trillions of dollars right there that gets reclaimed by revoking those tax cuts for guys like me who just never asked for it, didn't need it, frankly, didn't want it, and would much rather see that going back to the government to help a great many more people. Um, So you start there. Two is we have had a massive military expansion uh, under Trump and in, you know, uh, the dirty little secret of a lot of these COVID relief bills have been, they've been embedded with billions of dollars in increased defense spending in a pandemic relief bill. So you got to roll that stuff back. And then I think then you are looking at tax increases on the wealthy, which is where it would be. I mean, nobody's going to be trying to, in a, in a completely democratic government is going to try to finance a health insurance coverage expansion on the backs of working people uh, or middle-class people by any stretch of the imagination. This is all going to go on uh, upper tax bracket folks who've had a free ride for the last 30 years. The guys who aren't doing the work, always getting smacked down the, the little guy. John Gorman, everybody, thanks so much for joining us, man. We you appreciate did. it. Uh, again, we don't get a chance to, to get too wonky about this, but this is in- incredibly important for our space because we want to be able to innovate. We want to be able to grow, but it feels like in, in many cases we have those handcuffs on. So we appreciate you taking the time and really digging deep and explaining all this to us. Thanks for joining us, man. John, for our listeners who want to know more about this topic, where would you send them? Oh, man, the greatest source of objective information on this stuff is always the Kaiser Family Foundation at kff.org. They're just amazing on on coverage issues and matters of public health. And I recommend that site to everybody. Excellent. My brain hurts. (laughs) (laughs) We We out. out. 
Thank you for listening to podcast with Chad and Cheese. Brilliant. They talk about recruiting. They talk about technology. But most of all, they talk about nothing. Anywho, be sure to subscribe today on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We out. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.